Chapter Four of Their Yesterdays by Harold Bell Wright. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ignorance. When the man had gained a little knowledge from the thing that he had found to do, and had wearied himself greatly trying to follow the golden chain, link by link, to the very end, he came then to understand the value of ignorance. He came to see that success in working out his dreams depended quite as much upon ignorance as upon knowledge. That, indeed, to know the value of ignorance is the highest order of knowledge. There are a great many things about this man's life that I do not know. But that does not matter, because most of the things about any man's life are of little or no importance. That the man came to know the value of ignorance was a thing of vast importance to the man, and therefore is of importance to my story. Ignorance also is one of the thirteen truly great things of life, but only those who have much knowledge know its value. A wise ignorance is rich soil from which the seeds of knowledge will bring forth fruit, a hundredfold. I do not know. This is the beginning and the end of wisdom. One who has never learned to say, I do not know, has not the ABC of education. He who professes to be educated, but will not confess ignorance, is intellectually condemned. A man who pretends to a knowledge which he has not is like a pygmy wearing giant's clothing, ridiculous. But he who admits ignorance is like a strong knight, clothed in a well-fitting suit of mail, ready to achieve truth. When a man declares openly his ignorance concerning things of which he knows but little, the world listens with increased respect when he speaks of the thing he knows. But when a man claims knowledge of all things, the world doubts mightily that he knows much of anything, and accepts questioningly whatever he says of everything. That which a man does not know harms him not at all, neither does it harm the world, but that which, through a shallow, foolish self-conceit, he professes to know, when he has at best only half a knowledge, or, in a self-destructive vanity, deceives himself into thinking that he knows, betrays him always to the injury of both himself and others. An honest ignorance is a golden vessel, empty, ready to be filled with wealth, but a pretentious or arrogant knowledge in a vessel so filled with worthless trash that there is no room for that which is of value. The world is as full of things to know as it is full of books. No man can hope to read all the books in the world. Selection is enforced by necessity. So it is in knowledge. One should not think that, because a man is ignorant of some things, he is therefore a fool. His ignorance may be the manifestation of a choice wiser than that of the one who elects to sit in judgment upon him. With the passion to know fully aroused, with his mind fretting to grapple with the problem of life, and his purpose fired to solve the riddle of time, the man succeeded in acquiring this, that he must dare to know little. He came to understand that, while all knowable things are for all mankind to know, no man can know them all, and that the wisest men to whom the world pays highest tribute are the wisest because they have not attempted to know all, but recognizing the value of ignorance, they have dared to remain ignorant of much. Intellectual giants they are, Intellectual babes they are also. The man had thought that there was nothing that these men, these wise ones, did not know. He came to understand that even he knew some things of which they were ignorant. So his determination to know all things passed to a determination to know nothing of many things, that he might know more of the things that were most closely associated with his life and work. He determined to know the most of the things that, to him, were most vital. He also saw that he must work out his dreams within the circle of his own limitations, and that his limitations were not the limitations of his fellow workers, neither were their limitations his. 
He did not know yet just where the outmost circle of his limitations lay, but he knew that it was there, and that he must make no mistake when he came to it. And this, too, is true. Just to the degree that the man recognized his limitations, the circle widened. Also, the man came to understand that there are things knowable and things unknowable. He came to see that the truest wisdom is in this, for one to spend well his strength on the knowable things and refuse to dissipate his intellectual vigor upon the unknowable. Not until he began really to know things was he conscious in any saving degree of the unknowable. He saw that those who strive always with the unknowable beat the air in vain and exhaust themselves in their senseless folly. He saw that to concern oneself wholly with the unknowable is to rob the world of the things in which are its life. To meditate much upon the unknowable is an intellectual dissipation that produces spiritual intoxication and often results in spiritual delirium tremens. A habitual spiritual junker is a nuisance in the world. The wisdom of ignorance is in nothing more apparent than in a clear recognition of the unknowable. And then the man came to regret knowing some of the things that he knew. He came, in some things, to wish with all his heart that he had ignorance where he had knowledge. He found that much of the time and strength that he desired to spend in acquiring the knowledge that would help him to work out his dreams, he must spend, instead, in ridding himself of knowledge that he had already acquired. He learned that to forget is quite as necessary as to remember, and very often more difficult. Young he was, and strong he was, but already he felt the dragging power of the things he would have been better for not knowing, the things he desired to forget. They were very little things in comparison to the things that in the future he would wish to forget. But to him, at this time, they did not seem small. So it was that, in his effort to acquire knowledge, the man began to strive also for ignorance. I do not know what it was that the man had learned that he desired to forget. My story is not the kind of a story that tells those things. I know only that for him to forget was imperative. I know only that he held fast to ignorance in some things of which he had gained knowledge. It would have been better. For him in some things ignorance would have been the truest wisdom. Ignorance would have helped him to work out his dreams, when knowledge only hindered, by forcing him to spend much time striving to forget. Those who know too much of evil find it extremely difficult to gain knowledge of the good. Those who know too much of the false find it very hard to recognize the true. A too great knowledge of things that are wrong makes it almost impossible for one to believe in that which is right. Ignorance, rightly understood, is indeed one of the thirteen truly great things of life. And then this man, in learning the value of ignorance, came perilously near believing that no man could know anything. He came dangerously near the belief that knowledge is all a mirage toward which men journey hopelessly, a phantom to be grasped by no hand a will-o'-the-wisp, to be followed here and there, but leading nowhere. He, for a little, said that ignorance is the truest wisdom. He believed, for a time, that to say always, I do not know, is the height of all intelligence. One by one, he saw his intellectual idols fall in the dust of the commonplace. Little by little, he discovered that the intellectual masters he had served were themselves only servants. His intellectual gods he found to be men like himself. And so, for a while, he said, We can know nothing. We can only think that we know. We can only pretend to know. There is no real knowledge, but only ignorance. Ignorance should be exalted. In ignorance lies peace, contentment, happiness, and safety. Even of his work, of his dreams, he said this. He said, It is no use. 
To the very edge of this pit he came, but he did not fall in. To accept the fact of the unknowable without losing his faith in the knowable, to recognize the unknown without losing in the least his grip upon the known, to find the knowledge of yesterday become the ignorance of today, and still hold fast to the knowledge of the present, to watch his intellectual leaders dropping to the rear, and to follow as bravely those who were still in the front, to see his intellectual heroes fall, and his intellectual idols crumbling in the dust, and still to keep burning the fire of his enthusiasm, to find knowledge so often a curse, and ignorance a blessing, and still to desire knowledge. All this the man learned that he must do if he would work out his dreams. That which saved the man from the pit of hopeless disbelief in everything, and helped him to a clear understanding of ignorance, was this. He went back again into his yesterdays. From sheltered fence corners and hidden woodland hollows, from the lee of high banks and along the hedge in the garden, the last worn and ragged remnant of winter's garment was gone. The brook in the valley below the little girl's house had broken the last of its fetters and was rejoicing boisterously in its freedom. The meadow and pasture land showed the tender green of the first grass life. Pussy willow buds were swelling, and over the orchard and the wood a filmy veil of summer color was dropped as though by fairy hands. In the cherry tree, a pair of brown birds, just returning from their southern home, the madam bird insisting, as women will, that the beautiful traditions of the spot made it, for home-building, peculiarly desirable. It was a well-known fact, said she, that brown birds had builded there for no one knows how many ages. Even in the faraway city, the man felt the season in the air. The reek of city odors could not altogether drown the subtle perfume that betrayed the near presence of the spring. As though the magic of the budding, sprouting, starting time of the year, placed him under its spell, the man went back to the springtime of his life, back into his yesterdays. Once again he walked under the clear skies of childhood. Once again he lived in the blessed, blessed days when he had nothing to forget, when his mind and life were as a mountain brook that, clear and pure, from the spring of its birth runs ever onward, outward, turning never back, pausing never to form stagnant, poisonous pools. And there it was, in his yesterdays, in the pure sunlight of childhood, that he found new intellectual faith, that he came to a right understanding of the real wisdom of ignorance. The intellectual giants of his yesterdays, those wise ones upon whose learning he looked with childish awe, who were they? Famous scholars who lectured in caps and gowns and words of many syllables upon themes of mighty interest to themselves? Students who, in their laboratory worlds, discovered many wonderful things that were not so, and solved many puzzling problems with solutions that were right and entirely satisfactory, until the next graduating class discovered them to be all wrong and no solution at all. Great religious leaders, who were supernaturally called, divinely commissioned, and armed with holy authority to point out the true and only way of life, until some other with the same commission and authority pointed out a wholly different true and only way. Great statesmen upon whose knowledge and leadership the salvation of the nation depended, until the next election discovered them to be foolish puppets of a dishonest and corrupt party, and put new leaders in their places to save the nation with a new brand of political salvation, the chief value of which was its newness. No, indeed! Such as these were not the intellectual giants of the man's yesterdays. The heights of knowledge in those days were held by others than these. One of the very highest peaks in the whole mountain range of learning, in the yesterdays, was held by the hired man, Again at chore time, 
the boy followed this wise one about the stables and the barn, watching from a safe position near the door, while the horses were groomed and bedded down for the night. Again the pungent odors from the stalls, the scent of the straw and the hay in the loft, the smell of harness leather damp with sweat, was in his nostrils, and in his ears, the soft swish of switching tails, the thud of stamping hoofs, the contented munching of grain, the rustle of hay, with now and then a low whinny or an angry squeal. And fearlessly to and fro in this strange world moved the hired man. In and out among the horses he passed, perfectly at home in the stalls, seeming to share the most intimate secrets of the horse life. Everything that there was to know about a horse, confidently thought the little boy, this wonderful man knew. The very language that he used when talking about horses was a language full of strange, hard words, the meaning of which was hidden from the childish worshipper of wisdom. Such words as ringbone and spaven and heaves, and string halt and pastern and stifle and weathers and girth and hawk, to the boy seemed to establish beyond all question the intellectual greatness of the one who used them, just as words of many syllables sometimes fix for older children the position of intellectual heights of those who use them. Chiaroscuro, Chiropterus, Eschatology, and the Unearned Increment. Who, in the common, everyday, grown-up world, would dare question the artistic, scientific, religious, or political knowledge of one who could talk like that? Nor did the intellectual strength of this wise one of the yesterdays exhaust itself with the scientific knowledge of horses. He was equally at home in the coordinate sciences of cows and pigs and chickens. Again the boy stood in the cowshed laboratory and watched, with childish wonder, the demonstration of the master's superior wisdom as the white streams poured into the tinkling milk pail. "'How did he do it?' wondered the boy. "'Where did this wizard in overalls and hickory shirt and tattered straw hat acquire his marvellous scientific skill?' "'In the garden, the orchard, or the field, it was the same. "'No secret of nature was hidden from this learned one. "'He knew whether potatoes should be planted in the dark or light of the moon, "'whether next winter would be closed or open, "'whether the coming season would be early or late, "'whether next summer would be wet or dry. "'Always he could tell, days ahead,' whether it would rain, or if the weather would be fair. With the peach-tree twig he could tell where to dig for water. By many signs he could say whether luck would be good or bad. Small wonder that the boy felt very ignorant, very humble, in the presence of this wise one. Then, one day, the boy, to his amazement, learned that this wizard of the barnyard knew nothing at all about fairies. Common, everyday knowledge was this knowledge of fairies to the boy. But the wise one knew nothing about them. So dense was his ignorance that he even seemed to doubt, and smiled an incredulous smile when the boy tried to enlighten him. It was a great day in his yesterdays when the boy discovered that the hired man did not know about fairies. As the years passed and the time approached when the boy was to become a man, he learned the meaning of many words that were estranged to the intellectual hero of his childhood, as the language of that companion of horses had once been strange to him. In time, much of the knowledge of that barnyard sage became to the boy, even as the boy's knowledge of fairies had been to the man. Still, still it was a great day in his yesterdays when the boy discovered that the hired man did not know about fairies. Perhaps, though, it was just as well that the hired man did not know. If he had become too familiar with the fairies, his potatoes might not have been planted either in the light or the dark of moon, and the world's potatoes must be planted somehow. Equally great in his special field of knowledge was the old, white-haired negro who lived in a tiny cabin just a little way over the hill, 
Strange and awful were the things that he knew about, the fearsome, supernatural creatures that lived and moved in the unseen world. Of hants and spirits and witches and hoodoos, he told the boy with such earnest confidence and so convincing a manner that to doubt was impossible. In the unknowable world, the old negro moved with authority unquestioned, with piety above criticism, with a religious zeal of such warmth that the boy was often moved by the old man's wisdom and goodness to go to him with offerings from mother's pantry. And then, one day, the boy discovered that this wonderfully wise one could neither read nor write. Everybody that the boy knew in the grown-up world could read and write. The boy himself could even read cat and rat and dog. Vaguely the boy wondered, even then, if the old black saint's lack of these commonplace accomplishments accounted, in any way, for his marvelous knowledge of the unseen world. And father, father, was the greatest, the wisest, and the best man that ever lived. The boy wondered sometimes why the Bible did not tell about his father. Surely in all the world there was no other man so good as he. And as for wisdom, there was nothing, nothing that father did not know. Always, when other men came to see them, there was talk of such strange things as government and party, and campaigns and senators and congressmen. Things that the boy did not in the least know about. But he knew that his father knew, which was quite enough, indeed, for a boy of his age to know. The boy, in his yesterdays, wondered greatly when he heard his father sometimes wish that he could be a boy again. To him, in the ignorance of his childhood, such a wish was very strange. Not until the boy did himself become a man, and had learned to rightly value ignorance, did he understand his father's wish and in his heart repeat it. But there was one in those yesterdays, upon whose knowledge the boy looked in admiring awe, who taught him that which he could never outgrow. Very different from the wisdom of the hired man was the wisdom of this one. Very different was his knowledge from the knowledge of the old negro. Nor was his learning like, in any way, to the learning that made the boy's father so good and so wise among men. But this leader did not often come openly to the boy's home. Always, when his mother saw the boy in the company of this one, she called him into the house, and often she explained to him that the one whom he so admired was a bad boy, and that she did not wish her little son to play with him. So this intellectual leader of the yesterdays was forced to come, stealthily, through the orchard, dodging from tree to tree, until, from behind the woodshed, he could, with a low whistle, attract the attention of his admiring disciple, and beckon him to his side. Then the two would slip away over the brow of the hill, or down beyond the barn where, save from mother's watchful eye, the boy could enjoy the companionship of this one whose knowledge had so distinguished. And often the older boy laughed at the ignorance of his younger companion, laughed and sneered at him in the pride of his superior learning, while the little boy felt ashamed and, filled with admiration for his forbidden friend, wondered who he could ever grow to be as wise. Scarcely could he hope, for instance, to be able, ever, to smoke and chew and swear in some masterful way. And the little learner's face would beam with timid adoration and envy as he listened to the tales of wicked adventure so boastfully related by his teacher. Would he, could he ever be so bold, so wise in knowledge of the world? Poor little boy in the yesterdays, who knew nothing of the value of ignorance. Poor boys in the grown-up world, admiring and envying those who know more of evil than themselves. So, always secretly, the boy, as the years passed, gained the knowledge that makes men wish they could be boys again. So always, 
do men learn that value of ignorance too late? And then, as the man lived again in his yesterdays, and realizing in his manhood the value of ignorance, wished that he could be a boy again, the little girl came to take her place in his intellectual life, even as she took her place in all the life of his boyhood. Again he saw her wondering eyes, as she stood with him in the stable door to watch the hired man among the horses. Again he felt her timid hand in his as he led her to a place where, save from horns and heels, they could observe together the fascinating operation of milking. Together they listened to the words of strange wisdom and marveled at the knowledge of the barnyard scientist. All that the boy learned from the old negro of the fearsome creatures that inhabit the unseen world, he in turn gave to the little girl. And sometimes she even went with him on a pilgrimage to the cabin over the hill, there to gaze, half frightened, at the black-faced seer who had such a store of awful wisdom. The boy's pride in his father's superior goodness and wisdom she shared fully, because he was the father of the boy. All the sweet lore of childhood was theirs in common. All the wise ignorance of his yesterdays she shared. Only in the boy's forbidden friendship with that one who had such knowledge of evil, the little girl did not share. This knowledge, the knowledge that was to go with him, even in his manhood years, and which, at last, would teach him the real value of ignorance, the boy gained alone. Sadly, the man remembered how, sometimes, when the boy had stolen away to drink at that first muddy fountain of evil, he would hear her calling, and would be held from answering by the jeers of his wicked teacher. But never, when he was playing with the little girl, did the boy answer the signal whistle of that one whose knowledge he envied, but of whose friendship he was ashamed. In his yesterdays, the ignorance of his little girl-mate was an anchor that held the boy from drifting too far in the current of evil. In his yesterdays, the goodness and wisdom of his father was not a will-o'-the-wisp, but, to the boy, a steady guiding light. What mattered, then, if the knowledge of the old negro was but a foolish mirage? What mattered if the hired man did not know about fairies, or if he did know so many things that were not so? So it was that the man came to know the value of ignorance. So it was that the man did not fall into the pit of saying, There is only ignorance. And so it was, as he returned again from his yesterdays, that day when even the reeking atmosphere of the city could not hide altogether the sweetness of the spring, that the memory of the little girl was with him, even as the perfume of the season was in the air. It was the time of the first flowers. The woman had been out somewhere on a business errand, and was returning to the place where she worked. A crowd had gathered blocking the sidewalk, and she was forced to stop. Quickly, as if by magic, the people came running from all directions. The woman was annoyed. Her destination was only a few doors away, and she had much work still to do before the remaining hours of the afternoon should be gone. She could not cross the street without going back, for the traffic was very heavy. She faced about as if to retrace her steps, then paused, and turned again. The street would be open in a moment. It would be better to wait. Above the heads of the people she could see already, the helmets of the police clearing the sidewalk. Pushing into the jam, she walked slowly forward. Clang, clang, clang. With a rattle and clatter and crash, a patrol wagon swung up to the curb, so close that a spatter of mud from the gutter fell on the woman's skirt. The wagon wheeled and backed. The police formed a quick lane across the sidewalk. The crowd surged forward and carried the woman close against the blue-coated barrier. 
down the lane held by the officers of the law, so close to the woman that she could have touched them, came two poor creatures who were not ignorant of what is commonly called the world. They had seen life, so the world would have said. They were wise. They had knowledge of many things of which the woman, who shrank back from them in horror, knew nothing. Their haggard, painted faces, their disheveled hair, their tawdry clothing, false jewels, and drunken blasphemies drew a laugh from the crowd. Upon the soul of the woman the laughter of the crowd fell like a demon laugh from the depths of hell. Almost she shrieked aloud her protest. Because she knew herself to be a woman, she almost shrieked aloud. It was over in an instant. The patrol wagon rumbled away with its burden of woe. The crowd melted as magically as it had gathered. At the entrance of the building where she worked, the woman turned to look back, as though fascinated by the horror of that which she had seen. But upon the surface of that sea of life there was not the faintest ripple to mark the spot of the tragedy. And the crowd had laughed. The woman knew the character of that place so near the building in which she worked. Several times each day she passed the swinging doors of the saloon below, and always she saw men going in and out. Many times she had caught glimpses of the faces of those who occupied the rooms above as they watched at the windows. When first she went to work she had known little of such things, but she was learning. Not because she wished to learn, but because she could not help it. But the knowledge of such things had come to her so gradually that she had grown accustomed to knowing even as she came to know. She had become familiar with the fact without being forced to feel. Perhaps, if the incident had occurred a few years later, when the woman's knowledge was more complete, she, herself, might have been able to laugh with the crowd. This knowledge that enables one so to laugh is, seemingly, much prized these days among those who have not the wisdom to value ignorance. The afternoon passed, as such afternoons must, and the woman did her work. What mattered the work that was being wrought in the soul of her womanhood, the work committed to her hands, the work that refused to recognize her womanhood, that work was done, and that is all that seems to matter. And when her day's work was done, the woman boarded a car for her home. It was an hour when many hundreds of toilers were going from their labor. So many hundreds there were that the cars could scarcely hold them, and there were seats only for a few. Among those hundreds there were many who were proud of their knowledge of life. There were not many who knew the value of ignorance. The woman who knew that she was a woman was crowded in a car where there was scarcely room for her to stand. She felt the rude touch of strangers, felt the bodies of strange men forced against her body, felt their limbs crushed against her limbs, she felt their breath in her face, felt and trembled in frightened shame. In that car, crowded close against the woman, there were men whose knowledge of life was very great. By going to the lowest depths of the city's shame, where the foulest drags of humanity settle, they had acquired that knowledge. At first the woman had dreaded those evening trips from work in the crowded cars. But it was an everyday experience, and she was becoming accustomed to it. She was learning not to mind. That is the horror of it. She was learning not to mind. But this night it was different. The heart of her womanhood shrank within her trembling and afraid, cried out within her in protest at the outrage. In the fetid atmosphere of the crowded car, in the rough touch of the crushing bodies of sweating humanity, in the coarse, low jest, she felt again the demon that she had heard in the laughter of the crowd. 
she saw again the horror of that which had leered at her from out the disfigured, drunken faces of the poor creatures taken by the police. Must she? Must she learn to laugh that laugh at the crowd? Must she gain knowledge of the unclean, the vicious, the degrading things of life by actual contact? Was it not enough for her to know that those things were in the world, as she knew that there was fever in the marshlands? Or must she go in person into the muck and mire of the swamps? So it was that this woman, who knew herself to be a woman, did not crave knowledge, but ignorance. She prayed to be kept from knowing too much. And it was well for her so to pray. It was the highest wisdom. Because she knew her womanhood, she was afraid. She feared for her dream life that was to be beyond the old, old door. She feared for the one who, perhaps, would come to cross with her the threshold, for it was given this woman to know that only one in whose purity of life she believed could she ever enter into the life of her dreams. The master of life, in his infinite wisdom, made the heart of womanhood divinely selfish. This woman knew that her dreams could never be for her, save through her belief in the one who should ask her to go with him through that old, old door. And the things that the woman found herself learning made it harder for her to believe in any man. The knowledge that was forced upon her was breeding doubt and distrust and denial of good. The realization of her womanhood's beautiful dream was possible only through wise ignorance. She must fight to keep from learning too much. And in the woman's fight there was this to help her. In the crowd that had laughed, her startled eyes had seen one or two who did not laugh. One or two there were whose faces were filled with pity and with shame. Always in the crowded cars there was someone who tried quietly to shield her from the press, someone who seemed to understand. It was this that helped. These men who knew the value of ignorance kept the spark of her faith in men alive. The faith, with that which her dreams would be idle dreams, impossible of fulfillment, was kept for her by those men who knew the value of ignorance. The woman went to her work the next morning with a heart that was heavy with dread and nerves that were quivering with fear. The brightness, the beauty, and the joy of her womanhood she felt to be going from her as the sunshine goes under threatening clouds. The blackness, the ugliness, and the sorrow of life she felt coming over her as fog rolls in from the sea. The faith, trust, and hope that is the soul of womanhood was threatened by doubt, distrust, and despair. The gentleness, sensitiveness, and delicacy that is the heart of womanhood was beset by coarseness, vulgarity, and rudeness. Could she harden her woman heart, steel her woman nerves, and make coarse her woman soul to withstand the things that she was forced to meet and know? And if she could, what then? Would she gain or lose thereby? For the life of which she had dreamed, would she gain or lose? It was nearly noon when a voice at her side said, You are ill. It was a voice of authority, but it was not at all unkind. Turning, she looked up into his face and stammered a feeble denial. No, she was not ill. But the kind eyes looked down at her so searchingly, so gravely, that her own eyes filled with tears. Come, come, said the voice. This won't do at all. You must not lose your grip, you know. It will be all right tomorrow. Take the afternoon off and get out into the fresh air. And something in his voice, something in his grave, steady eyes, told her, made her feel that he understood. It helped her to know that this man of large affairs, of power and authority, understood. So, for that afternoon, she went to a park in a distant part of the city to escape 
for a few hours, the things that were crowding her too closely. Near the entrance of the park, she met a gray-haired policeman who, looking at her keenly, smiled kindly and touched his hat. Then, before she had passed from sight, he turned to follow leisurely the path that she had taken. Finding a quiet nook on the bank of a little stream that was permitted to run undisturbed by the wise makers of the park, the woman seated herself, while the policeman, unobserved by her, paused not far away to watch a group of children at play. Perhaps it was the blue sky, unstained by the city smoke. Perhaps it was the sunbeams that filtered through the leafy network of the trees to fall in golden flakes and patches on the soft green. Perhaps it was the song that the little brook was singing as it went its merry way. Perhaps it was the twittering, chirping presence of the feathery folk, who hopped and flitted so cheerily in and out among the shrubs and flowers. Whatever it was that brought it about, the life that crowded her so closely drifted far, far away. The city, with its noisy clamor, with its mad rush and unceasing turmoil, was gone. The world of danger and doubt and fear was forgotten. The woman lived again the days that were gone. The sky so blue above her head was a sky that arched her days of long ago. The sunshine that filtered through the trees was the same golden wealth that enriched the days of her childhood. The twittering, chirping, feathery folk were telling the same old stories. The little brook that went so merrily on its way was singing a song of the yesterdays. They were free days, those yesterdays, free as the days of the feathery folk who lived among the shrubs and flowers. There was none of the knowledge that, with distrust and doubt and despair, shuts in the soul. They were bright days, those yesterdays, as bright as the sunlight that out of a clear sky comes to glorify the world. There was none of that dark and dreadful knowledge that shrouds the soul in gloom. And they were glad days, those yesterdays, glad with the gladness of the singing brook. There was none of that knowledge that stains and saddens the heart. The woman, sitting there so still by the little brook, did not notice the well-dressed man who was strolling slowly through the park. A little way down the walk, the man turned, and again went slowly past the place where the woman sat. Once more he turned, and this time seated himself where he could watch her. The man's face was not a good face. For a little while he watched the woman, then rising, was starting leisurely toward her when the gray-haired policeman came suddenly into view around a turn in the path. The officer did not hesitate, nor was he smiling now, as he stepped in front of the man. A few crisp words he spoke, in a low tone, and pointed with his stick. There was no reply. The fellow turned and slunk away while the guardian of the law, with angry eyes, watched him out of sight, then turned to look toward the woman. She had not noticed. The officer smiled and quietly strolled on down the path. The woman had noticed neither the man nor her protector, because she was far, far away in her yesterdays. She did not heed the incident, because she was a little girl again, playing beside the brook that came across the road and made its winding way through the field just below the house. It was only a little brook, but beautifully clear and fresh, for it had come only a short distance from its birthplace in the glen, under the hill that she could see from her window. In some places, the long meadow grass, growing slowly down to the edge, almost touched above, making a cool, green cradle arch through which the pure waters flowed, with soft whispers, as though the baby stream were crooning to itself a lullaby. In other stretches, the green willows bent far over to dip their long, slim fingers in the slow current that crept so lazily through the flickering light and shade that it seemed scarce to move at all. 
and other places there were, where the streamlet chuckled and laughed over tiny pebbly bars in the sunlight, or gurgled past where flags and rushes grew. Again, with her dolls, the little girl played on the grassy bank, washing their tiny garments in the clear water and hanging them on flags or willows to dry, resting often to listen to the fairy song the water sang, or to whisper to the brook the secrets of her childhood dreams. The drowsy air was full of the sweet, grassy smell, mingled with the odor of mint and the perfume of the willows and flags and warm, moist earth. Gorgeous-winged butterflies zigzagged here and there from flower to flower, now near for a little, then far away. Honeybees droned their hymns of industry the while they searched for sweet treasures. And now and then, a tiny green frog would come out of a shadowy nook in the bank of the stream to see what the little girl was doing, or a bird would drop out from the blue sky for a drink or a bath in the pebbly shallows. And not far away, easily within call, Mother sat on the shady porch with her sewing where she could watch over her little girl. Dear, innocent, sheltered, protected yesterdays, when Mother told her child all that was needful for her to know, and told her in a most tender, beautiful way. Dear, blessed yesterdays, when love did not leave vice to teach the sacred truths of love, days that were days of blissful ignorance, not vicious ignorance, but the ignorance of the vicious. There was a wealth of ignorance in those yesterdays that is of more worth to womanhood, by far, than much knowledge of the world. And often the boy would come too, and together, they would wade hand in hand in the clear flood, mingling their shouts and laughter with the music of their playmate brook, while the minnows darted to and fro about their bare legs, or they would build brave dams and bridges and harbors with the bright stones, or, best of all, fashion and launch the ships of childhood. Oh, childish ships of the yesterdays! What precious cargoes they carried! What priceless treasures they bore to the faraway port of dreams! The little brook was a safe stream for the boy and girl to play beside. Nor did they know then that their streamlet flowed on and on until it joined the river, and that the river, in its course, led it past great cities that poured into it the poisons and the filth of their sewers, fouling its bright waters, until it was unfit for children to play beside. They did not know then, but the woman knew now. And what, she thought as she came back from her yesterdays, what of the boy who had played with her beside the brook? He, too, must have learned what happened to their brook. In learning, what had happened to him, she wondered. And wondering, she was afraid. Because she was no longer ignorant, she was afraid for the maid of her yesterdays. Not that she thought over to meet him again. She did not wish, now, to meet him, for she was afraid. She would rather have him as he was in her yesterdays. Slowly, the woman turned away from the quiet seat beside the brook. It was time for her to go. Not far away she passed the gray-haired policeman, who again smiled and touched his hat. Smiling in return, she bade him, "'Good afternoon.' "'Good afternoon, miss,' he said, still smiling gravely. "'Come again, miss, when you's want a breath of air that's pure and clean.' May heaven bless, for the sweet sake of womanhood, all men who understand." End of chapter 4